One of the major reasons for the mass immigration to the New World from places in Europe, aside from riches and exploration, was the option to practice religion more freely. Away from the restraints of Catholicism and Protestantism, these new settlers could experiment with new versions of old religions. This led to some rough patches, see the Salem Witch Trials, but it also led to some of the biggest names in modern religious history, many of them men. But amidst that ever-changing landscape, a group of women, or perhaps more appropriately, two young girls and their adult sister, etched their names into the history books alongside those men. Their names were Leah, Maggie, and Kate, and they were the Fox sisters. Welcome to Fox News. Well, I mean, it's about as accurate and right as they were. <laughs> I guess I mean, spoilers, but <laughs> yeah, I guess they they could, they probably would have fit in. Yeah, they would have at fit least in Leah. Right. Leah would have definitely fit in. <laughs> I mean, they knew how to spin some yarn. I think that I think we talk about this a lot. Just if people from back then were born now, I think they probably would have killed it on TikTok. Oh yeah, in some way or another, some fashion or another. It's very funny. It's the original, the original like talking with spirits was just some some bones cracking, some toes <laughs> talking about them bones. Hello, everybody. Well, I didn't even do a speaking of speaking of bones. Speaking of bones. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host Jacob Shop, and joining me is Evan Roosh. Hey, everyone. How we doing? Good to good to see you. <laughs> good, thank you. <laughs> all one of all me. one of you. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Evan, for this week, I did that thing that I like to do where I just destroy my entire sleep schedule and read a book that I didn't plan on reading in like three days. And so I am just all over the place. My brain is dead right One now. One could say you're bone tired. I am bone tired. Speaking of bone tired, <laughs> welcome to the Gems of History. There we go. Yes, there, Evan's covering for me today. Yeah. No, man, I, I just... I did way too much work in the span of two days for my brain to keep up. I mean, like we always, or what we talked about with uh, Peter and Mark when we did that collab podcast, you're a dedicated grinder when it comes to the research aspect of it. Give you a lot of props for reading, reading the books. Yeah, I mean, I... It was nice because like reading the book was the actual fun part because I went to the park by my house and just read like the whole thing there. Oh, okay. Then, like, are we are we talking like do you bring a charcuterie board, a nice <laughs> nice bottle of wine, a nice Sauvignon Blanc? Who do you think I am? Evan? Yeah, <laughs> just you're cutting off some delicate cheeses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's like all these animals just crowding around my table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, then doing the notes took way longer than I anticipated. So. I was an hour late today. <laughs> no, you but are. Here we are. You are never late. You are always, or you always arrive when you're supposed to. I don't know. Viv attacked me when I walked in the door. I think she was mad that I wasn't here on time. Yeah, she's a jumper. Our manager, That's for sure. our Viv. Yeah, <laughs> if she was the manager, she'd just be like a retainer or like our uh, rider, or whatever. Like the stuff that rock stars get before concerts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would just be assorted dog treats and bones. I'm down. But today we're talking about. The Fox Sisters, not dogs. Ooh, another episode about a different animal. We still have yet to cover moose. For those of you that don't know, the Fox Sisters are pretty much single-handedly responsible for creating a new wave of thought in religious circles, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. in America, and then took it overseas towards the end of their careers. 
but yeah, they were kind of a really big deal in a landscape that was very rapidly changing as far as religion and how people practiced it went. Yeah, the timing of what they did was truly perfect with what was going on. Not really in the background, you want to say, like the Civil War just got done. And well, yeah, Ameri- yeah, that was like right in the middle of their careers. Or Right, right. But it was almost the perfect storm of people being very sad and wanting a way to communicate with uh, long-lost relatives and in different avenues or different channels, like doing a seance, like doing different things. So you had a lot of people in America being more open to different mindsets, if yeah. you will. Um, it's odd that it took the form of let's listen to the dead and not do anything about you know helping the people that we just liberated. <laughs> liberated. Liberated. <quote> <laughs> but it's just truly this time period is the perfect storm, both in America and even in England as well, yeah. uh, which we'll talk about. But yeah, this is a fascinating story. But I mean, it makes sense when you think about it. It's frontier America. We're expanding mm-hmm. into like areas like California and the gold rush and all that stuff is happening around the time period where they're starting to come out as the Fox sisters. And so all of these people that are venturing out west, you don't know, first of all, like where you're going. You don't know what you're going to find. And you don't know how sick you're going to get on the way there. You might not even make it and so it's just a land of unknowns for the most of the united states at this point and then this one explorer says no i know a shortcut and then you're known as the donner <laughs> yeah party and you get a lake named day. after you yeah so yeah it's a it's a very interesting it's one of those right place right time kind of stories for the fox sisters especially for elder sister leah who as we'll see kind of comes out on the the strongest end of this stick on this whole ordeal. Yeah, talk about uh, riding the coattails a little bit. Yes. Just hitching hitching her uh wagon to the right horses. So, as I mentioned, I used a book for the bulk of this episode. It was called Talking to the Dead by Barbara Weisberg and it's a good book. It is a very thorough and detailed examination of the Fox sisters' history from beginning to end. But I would recommend reading it if you're interested in hearing more about the Fox sisters. I had to cut out a lot of the de- like the smaller details of what actually happened in their seances and stuff like that, just for time and stuff like that. But if you're interested, definitely recommend that book. It's kind of crazy that this isn't a movie yet. I would absolutely it has love. to be right. I just checked it out. There's a short seven minute film thing, but I don't think there's really a dedicated movie. Oh, nope, there is. 2010. Oh, yeah, that was the short, but I think this movie, I'm seeing now. Oh, no, that's the same one. IMD IMD rating of 5.8, so not that Oh, yeah, this is the short. (laughs) Oop. Yep. Uh, But there's a podcast that is going on right now that is like an audio called the gems of history podcast (laughs) yeah that you're listening to right now uh i don't usually plug other podcasts on our show but uh it's called the foxes of hydesville and it's pretty it's what got me back into the story of the fox sisters it's pretty much an audio drama recounting of the fox sisters story and it's it's a cool way to experience their story. It's obviously dramatized and they add a bunch of like modern words because the whole time the sister, elder sister Leah is saying like dropping F bombs and stuff all the time. It's, I don't think they said that 
1848. No, I don't think that word really uh, had prevalence yet. Nope. <laughs> that's, that's something that came along a little bit later. So stuff like that isn't very historically accurate, but the rest of it honestly follows the story pretty close. So. That's actually hilarious to imagine like a thousand years ago, even 500, probably even a hundred years ago, swear words are like no-no words. Yeah. <laughs> like they were probably completely different back oh, then than what we use now. And then saying something like moron today just make it be completely different than back than back in the day it's very funny thing about the english language that way very much so i mean like thumbing your nose at someone was like the biggest insult possible (laughs) back in shakespeare's day i was about to say isn't that what started the feud between in the story of romeo and juliet (laughs) (laughs) someone thumbed their nose at someone else yeah and then they got in a big fight and someone i think lost an ear or maybe that's the bible i don't know <laughs> that's leonardo da vinci yeah or no that's what's his name oh jesus da christ da oh my god god almighty um, wrote that we're, one we're way off on that. okay let's just get to the fox sisters we're just ruining our reputation at this point oh boy america in the 19th century was a veritable hotbed of new thought processes and ideas Technological advances pushed science forward at a rapid pace, leading to new medical knowledge as well as industrial progress. And at the same time, the United States itself was expanding in a physical sense, with land being, well, in a word, taken in the West and brought under the umbrella of the new America, and the population by the mid-1800s had grown from just over 5 million at the start of the century to over four times that. So, five century, or five decades and... The population is booming. Yeah, the population really did boom. And with that, we uh, discovered new land out west is how they uh, spun it. There's no one here. It's like, (laughs) I can't believe there's no one here. No one's claimed this yet. And then millions of Native Americans are like, no, 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 we're here. (laughs) Can you imagine if we landed on the moon and then there was just a bunch of Martians or like moon people that came out and we just staked our flag? We're like, this is ours now. (laughs) We land in the middle of their cul-de-sac. They're having like a (laughs) Halloween type thing. They're like, oh, hey, howdy, neighbor. Knock over their grills. (laughs) Oh, my God. They're having their Fourth of July type celebration. But with all these new advances in science and exploration also came religious upheavals led by con men and faith-bound individuals alike. People were craving a faith that matched their adventurous spirits while also offered comfort in a land full of unknowns. Because they were abandoning their settled communities, they needed to reform their beliefs alongside that and looked for validation to assure them that what they were doing was right. Right, it's a tale as old as time. I mean, throughout history, you always look for that validation in a supreme being or like something bigger than yourself, whether that's Christianity, spiritualism, or even just some random belief in yourself and how to conquer all these lands I've already been conquered. But again, I digress. God likes us, the white man, the best. So he'll forgive me if I kill 10,000 Indians. He told us that this was okay. (laughs) You ever heard of Manifest Destiny? Yep, it says it right here. Oh, and it's not in the Bible. If if you take the first letter of the first three chapters of the (laughs) book of Mark, it says, go west and take everything. But in New York, for example, in this time period, the practice of Calvinism, which preached that no person could change their own destiny after their earthly life, but rather that it was pre-assigned for them at birth, was being ditched in favor of more comforting, something that gave them more agency over their salvation. Because being told from birth that you have no control is something that people don't like to hear. 
Yeah, that's a sect of Christianity that we really haven't dove into too much on this show yet. We covered Mormons uh, quite a bit. So maybe that's the next one we cover, because they were up to many a hijinks. Yeah, we we briefly touched on it in the Elizabeth Bathory episode, because right. she was a strict Calvinist, and I had the theory that maybe that lent towards her behavior in her life, but that was pretty much the only time we've mentioned it, I mm-hmm. think. But in Calvinism's place, Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians swept all those old structures out of the way and gave individuals the responsibility of their own destinies, urging them to live a life that demonstrated their godliness through the way that they lived their lives. Revival meetings were held to give spectacle to people's dedication to God, with groups like the Shakers physically flailing into dance-like outbursts as evidence of their bodies being filled by the powers above. Have you seen modern-day, like, shakers and just the spiritual videos yeah. where people are speaking in tongues yep i don't i'll never really bag on people's religions on this show but my word are those very very funny so i'm just picturing that but in old time garments with a big top hat <laughs> like i'm shutting them and that crowd goes wild There's ladies wearing 10 layers just like trying <laughs> <Yeah>. to move <laughs> but yeah those are those videos are my favorite because a lot of metal bands will just dub breakdowns over like when people start flailing out of their chairs and stuff. That is tremendous. Very funny. In Palmyra, New York, a young man named Joseph Smith told people that he had been in communication with an angel named Moroni, who had given him two golden plates that told the true story of God's people, setting the groundwork for the modern-day Mormon church. In short, it was a mad dash to see who could be the most charismatic and appealing in the realm of the faith. But unbeknownst to most, these revivals and conversions were just about to be pulled into question by two young girls on a farm just 10 miles from where Joseph Smith was reading off tablets in a hat. I love it so much. (laughs) It's just the different (laughs) spiritual upheavals that have been happening. And luckily, like this one never really gets too... uh, doesn't really get too violent, I guess we Not say. really at all, honestly, no. Compared to old uh, Joseph Smith, who Dude, was a prophet. The Mormons, man. They have quite the blood trail following them, or, but whether of, it be their own people or others. Yeah, a little bit of a... They're definitely wild cards. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about them... I believe we did a full episode on the Mountain Meadow Massacre, which was all mm. Mormons killing a bunch of settlers. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're trying to make it through. <laughs> they had quite the history. So backing up a few years, we meet a man named John David Fox. John was born in the 1780s, the son of a blacksmith whose family came from Germany many years before. His father died when he was in his teens, leaving him with an inheritance that he received over a decade later upon his marriage to a 16-year-old girl named Margaret Smith in 1812. Ooh. It's not that bad. He's like in his mid-20s. No, I mean more so like having to wait the 10 years. He's probably like, oh, turn yeah. 16, turn 16, turn 16. <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't have to like ma- wait to marry her. He just had to wait until he was married to someone. Right, so, right, right. But for Kamiga, it's not like he looked at her six-year-old Margaret Smith. He's like 10 years from now, maybe. He's the first ever groomer. Wow. <laughs> Whereas John came from a more run-of-the-mill background, his wife Margaret boasted grandparents who were well-to-do farmers and civic leaders on one side of the family, with the other side of the family boasting influential French ties all the way back to the Huguenots, who later, this side of the family, turned British loyalists after the American Revolution. Well, look at that. The latter side also boasted multiple women who claimed to be blessed, or perhaps burdened, with second sight, or clairvoyance. In stories about her maternal grandmother, 
named Grandma Rutan, it was said that she would give rise to trance in between midnight and 2 a.m. and track ghostly funerals to the nearby graveyard, with her husband kind of just following along to make sure that she was safe. That he's a ride or die. Like I can't be woken up for anything. If you're waking me up at one in the morning to follow you to a graveyard <laughs> to a ghost funeral, <laughs> like I love, I love the goth energy, babe. But <laughs> oh my God. I just, I didn't sign up for this part of it. Right, like, I signed up for funny. the fishnets. For the like, fishnets. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic to have in a relationship. To oh, say the least. Oh, for sure, for sure. So after her nightly visits to the nearby graveyard, the next morning, Granny Rutan would then tell everyone about who died and who was at the funeral, events which allegedly always took place within the next few weeks in the living room. So kind of a depressing breakfast. Uh, it's a, a depressing breakfast routine. Just having that with your eggs in the morning. It's like, I haven't had coffee yet. And then they're like, what's coffee? Well, <laughs> who in town's dying in the week? Yeah, that's... I mean, I would honestly consider that more of a burden than anything. I, I would, just, too. If you just saw that person at the grocery store, like, you know that five bucks I owe you? I'm not going to give it to Go you. Go give him a big hug and pat him on the back a few times. Yeah. <laughs> Margaret's sister, on the other hand, named Elizabeth, also claimed to have this gift, stating that at the age of 19, she had a dream about a gravestone in a small cemetery. When she approached said gravestone and read the inscription, she saw her own name etched into it, showing the initial of her husband's last name and her age, which was 27. This prophecy would later come to pass when she married a man with the last name Higgins and indeed did die at the age of 27. First member of the 27 Club. Hey! Luckily for Margaret, though, these misfortunes and dismal prophecies avoided her, and she went on to have four healthy children with John by 1820, the oldest being baptized Leah Ann, followed by Maria and Elizabeth, and the couple's only son, David. Little is known about their early lives, but eventually the family moved to western New York from New York City when the Erie Canal was being worked on and settled in Wayne County, near a town known as Hydesville. But it's around this time that John and Margaret separated, due to John's drinking and gambling. So Margaret moved in with her sister in Rochester and likely survived on money from her grandfather, whom Leah described as being the noblest man she ever met, offering her a sense of stability in her childhood amidst a very uncertain setting in general. Do you think that he was betting on when the canal would be built? So like something silly like that? Who? The, oh, like the gambling? Yeah, the gambling, yeah. The I gambling. Mean, it's funny because... It, there weren't sports. Right. <laughs> it's funny because it talks about in the book how the people of Hydesville were super against the canal, saying that it was going to ruin their town. And then so that bypassed them and went through Newark. And that, the New York, Newark just blew up. <laughs> yeah. And it was a huge boom town. And then Hydesville kind of just slowly declined into nothingness. Wow, the chief economist there probably yeah. got... Probably got feathered and tarred. <laughs> That's like when we were talking about last week how there was someone who had to be against clean drinking water. That's this being against the Erie Canal when it's just like so against the Erie such Canal. Such a good idea. There's probably, I mean, there were probably so many people against like the Statue of Liberty. Oh, or something. it's from like, the French. It's from the French. Oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> Speaking of Leah, she will be the main focus of John and Margaret's original four children. In 1827, at the age of 14 and a half, Leah moved out and married a man named Bowman Fish, who quickly realized he had married a child and left under the guise of a business trip out west, eventually marrying a rich widow in Illinois and leaving Leah behind. 
Oh, wow. He just got out of there and became... He just got out of there and just became a little bit more wealthy. Not oh, much <laughs> more wealthy, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, he married a 14 and a half year old girl. Yeah. And I guess he just wanted to look for a sugar mama. But he did stay long enough to get her pregnant. And Leah gave birth to a baby girl uh, who she named Lizzie somewhere in between 1827 and 1830. Eey. So, yeah, he was around for two to three years, maybe. Leah remained on her own for a long time, eventually settling down in Rochester and doing her best to make a living as a single mother by teaching piano lessons to local children. In the meantime, however, her father John had cleaned up his act, gotten sober, and became a devout Methodist, likely due to the sweeping conversions in what came to be known as New York's Burned Over District, in reference to the fires of religious enthusiasm there. Oh, I was not expecting that when yeah. you said burned over no not physical fire no <laughs> so it's just like a bunch of people came through here and just started converting a bunch of people to whatever their faith was and it, there are so many like demonstrations in that area that it just came to be known as the burned over district the, the thing is like the new holy land was like right there they could have gone with that <laughs> that's true they could have just visited joseph smith like 10 miles away and been like you're the prophet that said you're going to lead us into like the new age where all the white people are cool. And then they were like, we have Joseph, we have Joseph Smith at home. <laughs> we yeah. we're, we're all right. It's a former drunk and gambling. Man. Yeah. <laughs> now that John had become reformed, he and Margaret got back together and moved to Canada. Oh, bonjour. <laughs> Likely on the urging of the Rutan family, the grandparents who had turned British loyalists and then were granted land in Canada after the revolution, and that is where the couple settled in Ontario, where John and Margaret essentially started a second family by having two more children, both girls, named Margareta and Catherine, most likely born in October 1833 and March of 1837, respectively. Nicknamed Maggie and Kate, the two young girls were raised on the family farm in Canada for a short time with some of their older siblings, aside from Leah, before moving back to the United States in the early 1840s. The next few years saw a lot of change for the Fox family. They settled in Rochester with Margaret's mother and thus the two young Fox sisters' grandmother dying, and a young confection salesman named Calvin Brown, who was kind of an adopted son for the Fox family, moved in with the Foxes. So there's a lot of not only moving physically, but a lot of moving with personnel within the house. So there's a lot going on for these two young girls. Yeah. And that's a lot to go through. I mean, you just mentioned like the passing of, again, more family members. Like it's a lot to go through. And not to mention the fact that you're a good amount younger than your next youngest sibling. Yeah. So you're kind <laughs> of a separate childhood on your own it's just right. you two and, and the rest of the family's on their own so right she has a full-time job and you're pooping your pants <laughs> right like your your oldest sister already has a kid and runs her own business yeah like, it's, a, it's a very different childhood for these two than it was for everyone else mm -hmm. not only was there a lot of change for the family but rochester itself was changing the new Erie Canal brought a boom to the town's population and business while religious upheavals had reformed it so many new buildings were being erected that builders in the town struggled to keep up, and new Victorian principles and a change from farming to industry pushed for more separation of men and women not only at home, but in society at large. A growing divide was forming between well-to-do businessmen and those who struggled to make ends meet, and according to Horace Greeley, who was a reporter for the New York Tribune, a family of five could expect to pay 
10.37 on average to cover their basic living expenses each week, but most individuals at this time period only made $3 a week, forcing not only parents, but children to work for the family as well. At the same time, political and social reform was pressing through Rochester, with networks of men and women prodding the movements of abolition and women's suffrage forward. Religious fervor translated to social issues, and new sciences attempted to explain human behavior, like mesmerism or phrenology, which is the study of head shape. Oh, (laughs) they're like an egg. There's a round one. There's a huge one. There's small ones. Yeah. And that's it. Basically what (laughs) they did, they they had charts and they're like, if they have a bigger area of their head here, that means that they're predisposed to this behavior. Oh my God. It's very interesting. Wow, the birthplace of psychology, I guess. Just look at the shape of their dome. Yeah, exactly. So there's, it's just a very uncertain time period in all aspects of life for these two young girls who are kind of just coming into their own as people. Right, yeah. That's a tough way to go through adolescence. Yeah, so amidst all of it were Maggie and Kate Fox. And eventually, they didn't even stay with their family. They stayed with friends of the family, who were known as the Posts. But by the time the family left for the small rural community of Hydesville in December of 1847, Maggie and Kate had already lived lives of dichotomy. They were Canadian and at the same time American. They had lived on a farm, transplanted to a city, and now moved back to a farm. And their parents still reconciled with their former separation and reconnection before the two girls arrived. On mom's side, they got talks of clairvoyance and future sight, whereas dad was praying to God. In a word, their lives up until now were unsettled. Maggie was an energetic 14-year-old, and Kate was a slim, dark-haired 10-year-old with eyes that conveyed themselves as purple to some people. They were at the same time fun, but dour because of severe headaches that they would occasionally suffer from. And when the move to Hydesville took place, the girls, especially Maggie, were approaching another transitional period, puberty. And with puberty came the high likelihood of inheriting the womanly disease of hysteria if the girls were not kept in check at home. Oh my god. <laughs> an actual documented like doctor's note, I'm sure. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. <laughs> literally would have been a doctor's note. It was that and sometimes a little bit yappy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. oh god, this is a doctor? <laughs> you better keep them in check. Yeah. <laughs> but all of that would become inconsequential by the spring of 1848. The winter of 1847 was bad. It forced John Fox to halt construction on the home that he was building next to his sons, and it pushed the family into a rental house. Things were going smoothly with the family until around the end of March 1848. Shortly after Kate's 11th birthday, strange noises began to be heard around the house. In a publication written by E.E. Lewis with an insanely long title, which will be one of many that we'll talk about, titled, A Report of the Mysterious Noises Heard in the House of Mr. John D. Fox in Hydesville, Arcadia, Wayne County, authenticated by the certificates and confirmed by the statements of citizens of that place and vicinity. Thank God they discovered the intro page, or like the work cited page, I guess, in this (laughs) case. Right, (laughs) exactly. Then we had Gone with the Wind. Yeah, oh my goodness. But this book recounted reports from locals about the happenings at the Hydesville house, and this is where we get our first glimpses of the Fox family's eventual legacy. It started with soft knocking sounds, quiet ones, but still loud enough to vibrate chairs. This continued night after night until David Fox, Maggie and Kate's older brother, 
came to visit the family in an effort to find a logical explanation for the noises. The house was quiet upon his arrival, but when night fell, not only did the noises begin again, but they began to respond to Kate. When she snapped her fingers, the noises would respond in kind and in number. The family then began to ask questions to the noisemakers. How old were the children? It tapped the correct numbers. Next, tap twice for yes, and do not tap if the answer is no. Was whatever they were communicating with a spirit? Tap, tap. Was it injured in the house? Tap, tap. And the cycle continued, eventually leading the family to learn that the spirit belonged to a peddler who had visited this home years before and was killed in that house for his money. His bones were then buried in the basement. At this point, Margaret, the mother of the family, grabbed the neighbors, and then they experienced the phenomenon in the house as well. (laughs) Slowly but surely, those neighbors told other neighbors, and eventually, a dozen or more guests were packed into the house. Originally, the girls, Maggie and Kate, were huddled together and terrified, and by the end of the night, Margaret and the girls had abandoned the house and left the men to keep watch over it. Yeah, you gotta get out of there. (laughs) (laughs) If you're hearing tap, 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 tap. I just love that not only did she go get the neighbors, but she made sure to ask whatever they were communicating with if it would stick around if they got the neighbors. (laughs) Right. Do you think it just responded, actually, I have a thing at seven. Um, Public speaking is not my forte. Yeah, but I guess I'll try. I'm really not much of a performer, um, but I can do my best. I'll try try and remember (laughs) the best number of taps. Right. I'll try to remember my lines. (laughs) So by the next day... It wasn't just about a dozen people that were at the house, but rather hundreds had gathered at the house, taking turns to hear the sounds and try and find the source. But nobody was able to explain it. So you literally have people funneling in and out of the house, taking turns to hear these sounds that the children were reporting the night before and all these neighbors were saying or hearing. Yeah, and that's hundreds of people. Like, that's the entire town. And, yeah, in a very rural, small town. Yeah, very rural that area. denied the Erie Canal. Yeah. <laughs> they stood, They just have, like, stickers, like bumper stickers on the back of their wagons. Like, <laughs> Defund the canal. <laughs> yeah. It's like a license plate frame that says Erie Canal, don't blame me. <laughs> yeah. Do not wash on me. (laughs) That didn't make sense, but I hope you kind of get it. (laughs) Eventually, the girls returned back to the house and sat in the dark to commune with the spirits, offering guests the chance to see them ask questions and get supposedly otherworldly responses. A doctor came to the house to attend to Kate when she was feeling under the weather as she was pretty much chronically ill her entire life. And he said that perhaps the young girl was manipulating her joints to crack and create the wrappings, the first of many who will doubt the genuine nature of the communications. In the report that E.E. Lewis later wrote, he stated that many skeptics did show up to the house, but that eventually, quote, they have been compelled to acknowledge that they felt themselves in the presence of one from the spirit country, end quote. Yeah, a lot of the early critics, and I mean throughout their entire career, the critics They have a really hard time trying to get anything to disprove this. They pretty much never do. Officially do, yeah. Until, well, we'll see later on. Like (laughs) They kind of get helped on with that. Yeah. But E.E. Lewis's collection of accounts, as well as local newspapers, are the earliest reports of the Hydesville wrappings. But one thing was missing. Maggie and Kate's account of what happened. Nobody asked them. The Hydesville wrappings is 
very funny. I know. It'd be a, I feel like that would be an incredible album. Right? <laughs> I mean, is it safe to say that Maggie and Kate were the first white rappers? I would say so. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> so, I mean, Eminem, watch out. It was just early beatboxing, except it was rapping. <laughs> yeah. I don't, because sometimes they call it knocking in the book. Most of the time mm. they call it rapping. Just, just call it knocking. I've never heard the word rapping used more than in this research. Yeah. Back in Rochester, though, Leah was continuing to support herself and Lizzie with her piano lessons. According to reports, despite the fact that she was attractive and sociable, she had been husbandless for almost 20 years by the time the Hydesville rappings began. And that just shows the separation in age between her and her younger siblings. Oh my god, yeah. They're basically <laughs> like nephews or nieces to her. Right, they really are. Like that's probably really hard to form an actual relationship in that like in this case. Yeah, I mean you're 34 and one of them is nine or no one of them's 12 the other's 14 right yeah and they're getting public attention from everyone <laughs> yeah exactly and and you're getting ignored by all the men <laughs> she's just in the back just trying her darndest to make her own rappings like talk to me ghosts <laughs> I know. her daughter is older than her si- her siblings are right, like, right it's it's a very weird dynamic for them to inherit yeah in late April, nearly a month after the events in Hydesville began, Leah was alerted to what was happening by the mother of one of her students, and she almost immediately boarded a night boat and traveled back to Hydesville. She arrived at the house her family was supposed to be staying at, only to find that it was empty, because they had moved to David's farm, which was kind of nearby, but the family was barricaded inside. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want anything to do with anyone at no. this point. I mean, for weeks, they'd been dealing with hundreds of people coming in and out of the house. that they were, It wasn't even their house. So it was a house they were renting because they couldn't build their own. <laughs> the landlord's pissed. <laughs> yeah. uh, but onlookers, even though they were barricaded inside, still gaped through the windows to see what they could or perhaps hear the knocking. And hoping that they could leave the wrappings behind with the move, the family was sorely disappointed. Margaret had realized that these weren't just random noises, but instead, they followed Maggie and even more so, apparently followed Kate. Leah decided that she was going to figure it out by herself and decided to try and separate the girls, taking the younger Kate back to Rochester with her. But before they got more than a few miles back up the canal, the rappings were heard once again. In Hydesville, the peddler, whose name had been discovered to be Charles B. Rosna, was now joined by throngs of other spirits eager to communicate, despite Kate not being there. Even on the brand new canal? <laughs> on the brand new canal! <laughs> Her dad's probably just like, you can't take the canal back. <laughs> oh my god. I guess he it's wasn't. The, he's just comparing, it's the river sticks, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, at this point, because it started with just the peddler giving them answers about his death, and now there's other people interjecting in all of these communications as well. So it's, it's expanding its reach and it's expanding its ability. So it's, it's very quickly turning into something more than what they thought. Oh, 100%. And real quick, because I was also kind of curious to what a peddler was. It's just someone who goes and like sells things. Yeah, um, place exactly. To place. Like a traveling salesman. Right. In <laughs> yeah. case anyone was like, why are they, why are they so obsessed with I have paddles? To, I have to the use the canal. <laughs> <laughs> I have to use the terms of the times. Yes. Upon their arrival back in Rochester, Leah recounted the first night by stating, quote, 
No sooner had I extinguished the light than the children screamed, and Lizzie said she felt a cold hand passing over her face and another over her shoulder down her back. She screamed fearfully, and I feared that she would go into spasms. Katie was also much frightened. End quote. <laughs> and then they were like, there's only two logical explanations here. Ghosts or the hysteria is finally setting in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, doc- the doctors were right. <laughs> Lizzie, you should be past her hysteria age by now. Yeah. <laughs> but I also love that Katie's just an afterthought. <laughs> She's oh, right. like, Lizzie might go into spasms. I'm concerned. Katie's also scared. <laughs> <laughs> Katie's also here. <laughs> But this trend continued into the morning, with tables and chairs being moved downstairs, doors opening and slamming, and footsteps all around the house. And it was said that the footsteps sounded like they were wearing wooden clogs. Oh, so you got some like who who had wooden clogs? Was that Dutch people? Dutch Scandinavian? That's kind of what so you I'm got, picturing. Yeah, you got some Dutch people running. A lot around. of heat, a whole does. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Just like that. Yep. <laughs> After Watch that just be something offensive in <laughs> a, Scandin- yeah, a Scandinavian language. After two days, Leah abandoned this house and not long after moved again to a three-floor three residence where Margaret and Maggie came to stay with the other girls. But despite the moves, the footsteps and the shenanigans continued, even lifting the beds while the girls were on them into the air, almost all the way to the ceiling, according to the reports. Oh my god. They're doing, like, new age haunting things. Yeah, exactly. Even now, wow. They're taking, like, cues from every Poltergeist movie ever. Made. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, Margaret invited Calvin Brown, who was that adopted son of the Fox family, to come and stay with all of the girls in Rochester and be kind of their protector. And once he arrived, Leah became more confident and began to test the spirits, asking them questions to which they responded with stomps of their disembodied feet. She even one time asked them to dance, which they did while she sang along with them. It's like all I can think of is like, y'all have ever heard the Monster Mash? <laughs> it's probably the Monster. This is probably like some old jig or something. And oh yeah, you're just hearing them dancing in wooden clogs. Oh, oh my that god, has to be so loud. I wouldn't be able to sleep either. No. So Calvin quickly realized that he was moving into a place where he was far out of his depth, and when he vowed that he would bring an end to all of the devilry, the spirits responded by hurling slippers and a brass candlestick at him. Oh. <laughs> the spirits then went on the the spirits then went on the offensive against the girls, slapping them with invisible hands. Kate was eventually slapped twice and fell unconscious after the second slap. The family initially thought she died, oh. but they found her pulse again, and she snapped back too, and recounted how when she was unconscious, she had seen all of the events transpiring at Hydesville, and afterwards broke down crying. Aside from Leah's recounting, we have our first taste of the activity other than these in Rochester through a minister named Lemuel Clark, who recounted his experience with the foxes in one of his writings. His close friend, Mr. Granger, invited Lemuel Clark to sleep with him while he was visiting, which was apparently a common platonic practice and a signal that Clark wished to talk in private. Just guys being dudes. Just guys laying in bed together, talking about stuff. Within five feet, because they need to talk. <laughs> Does that have the same ring to it? Because their spirit's round. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a little spooky. Mr. Granger admitted to being contacted by his deceased daughter through the intervention of a young girl. 
That young girl ended up being Kate Fox. Lemuel Clark, when he heard this news, was outraged at what he figured was his friend being taken advantage of, and he swore to expose these Fox sisters as frauds. Shortly after, the Foxes, excluding Sister Maggie, arrived at the Granger house for a meal. Immediately upon sitting down and interrupting Lemuel Clark's blessing on the meal, the noises began. Those in attendance quickly began asking questions and received knocks in return. Clark then took his chance to see what the spirits could do and asked them to move the table. He asked everyone to pull their chairs back and place their feet on the rungs of the chairs with their hands raised, and when they did this, Clark witnessed the table slide across the rug towards him. When he pulled it closer, he asked the spirits to move the table back, and it did so. He agreed to a second meeting after these events transpired. Yeah, after you, after you see that, you're like, I need a follow-up on yeah, this. Yeah, because he like, went to the table and checked. There was no wheels, there was no runners, there was no slides. Right, no string or anything. And this is on an old-timey, knobby, like, real thick rug. Like, someone actually built that table. Like yeah, that, exactly. That kind of way. It's a heavy-duty table. Yeah. So the second meeting started off tense because nothing happened. Leah then turned to her daughter Lizzie and began yelling at her, (laughs) stating that it was her fault that the spirits weren't communicating, because apparently Lizzie had announced the night before that she wanted the spirits to go away because she was afraid someone would get hurt after Katie fell unconscious once again after a recent encounter. So, not the caretaker of the year (laughs) on her part. Like, you scared the spookies away. You're ruining it. (laughs) Yeah, you blew it. Yeah, yelling at your daughter and saying that the ghosts are gone because of her. <laughs> it's right. kind of an interesting tactic. A normal person would be like, wow, we are cured. Yeah, exactly. The spirits then wrapped in agreement with Leah that Lizzie was the one that angered them, and Lizzie ended up repenting for a sin that she didn't understand, and then shortly after this meeting was banished to go live with her father in Illinois. <laughs> she doesn't come back into the story for like a long time. <laughs> at least 10 years. That's so funny that she gets banished to Illinois. I know, to her wealthy now, her <laughs> now her, wealthy father. Yeah, the now wealthy father. Who she never met. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck finding him. I was about to say, how do you even find him? <laughs> just like, because they literally used to just like sew a patch onto people's clothing and say property of so they wouldn't get stolen. Yeah. So <laughs> she might have just done that. I mean, she was like 20 at this point, so she right. can handle herself. Like a little, yeah, can handle herself a little bit better, but still, like. Just showing up, well, maybe there was a letter sent, but just showing up like, Papa. Hi, Dad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Want to see a neat little trick? I brought (laughs) friends with me. Right. After multiple more nights of meetings, Clark was more willing to accept that perhaps the spirit world and the physical world were intermingling after all. The activity continued, still picking on Calvin by pulling his chair out when he was holding a pitcher of water so that he spilled on himself. <laughs> I mean, that's just good. That's just good comedy. I'm just, not going to lie. That's good pranks. That's, it's actually just them practical jokers. <laughs> like, the, I would, the, the sisters had to have laughed a little bit. I would definitely, if I had this ability, I would definitely sick it on people to do assorted hijinks. Oh, 100%. The meetings were becoming more public and well attended, taking the form of spirit circles, seances, or sittings. And with the changing social attitudes placing more value on each individual's importance in life, it became harder to let them go in death. So, more people in general are just finding more value in the fact that they might be able to talk to someone who they had a lot of special connection with in life. 
Right. And this is kind of the first time this has ever even became an option to people like outside of old JC doing it in right. the, in the, in the, in the good book. But yeah, this is the first time that people actually have a chance to like, Hey, maybe they're not fully dead. Still get like those last words. in, so right. you can kind of see why so many people buy into this. Cause it's hope it is. And I mean, there was other examples of poltergeists and stuff like that and people communicating with spirits before the Fox sisters came around, obviously. Right. But it, it was never really like an organized thing where you could kind of summon a specific person that you were trying to contact or anything like that. So this offered them that avenue of, of choice. Right. Totally. Shortly after Reverend Clark's visits, the group returned to Hydesville with the Foxes to try and uncover the peddler's bones, which was the apparent original source of the knocks. After earlier attempts had failed to dig up the bones in the basement, their endeavors ended similarly, hitting an underground stream and flooding the basement. However, this time they did find smashed bits of pottery, strands of hair, and bone fragments. To believers, this signaled that the spirits were real. They were onto something. <laughs> but to skeptics, the bones probably belonged to an animal. It changed nothing. More hostile religious folks, intent to drive any hint of the devil from their community, formed a mob and marched on David's farm. So, I was about different to say, reactions. I was about to say, like, I know it's coming. The mob. <laughs> the mob, the Christian mob is coming. Yes. <laughs> they eventually did disperse when David came outside. He literally just came outside and they were like, oh, this is your property. Oh, we you, thought it was hysteria You're a again. respectable guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is your house? Okay, Sorry. continue. Continue. We will put away our, our pitchforks and torches. Yeah, so they just kind of dispersed on their own, but with Joseph Smith, who is that Mormon leader we mentioned at the beginning, being lynched by a mob only years before, the danger was now becoming very real. Yeah, there's uh, some precedence for this. Yes. The girls returned to Rochester, holding more seances for people like their family friends, the Posts, who Maggie and Kate had stayed with on their return to America. Slowly throughout the summer, the methods of communication were refined. A response of three raps meant yes, five raps meant that the spirit wished to be presented with an alphabet, and silence meant no. These methods were quickly tested, with the Post's cousin being told he shouldn't buy a piece of land he intended to purchase in Michigan, but instead to remain in Rochester, despite having no job. Kate, who was talking through the spirits, guided him to a plot of land to buy, told him what time to go there to buy it, and even eventually found him a job. Everything that the spirits told him had come true, but if he didn't go at the right time, he faced disappointment because no one was willing to receive him at those times. Until the spirits told him to go, nothing would happen. Very dependent on old spirits. It's very... This is a weird story. Like, he comes into town no, like just to talk to someone who had posted about selling the land. Mm-hmm. And they say, don't buy the land. Like, this is the spirit of your father. Don't buy that land. Stay here. With no job. Like, he's got to support his family. Yeah. And then it... <laughs> don't work. <laughs> he goes and talks to the people who the land... Like, who she tells him to talk to that are selling the land there. They're there. They sell it to him for the price that she said that they would sell it to him for. <laughs> A regular transaction. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes, he goes early to the employer that she tells him about. He gets turned away mm. and then gets called back later. And the employer later tells him, like, yeah, someone got fired, like, right after you came the first time. So then we could hire you. So 
That is a little coincidental. Something weird going on. A little fishy, a little fishy. Maybe they're just like destroying other people's livelihoods to come up with this guy. (laughs) So, in short, the new methods were a success. In July of 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention was held in New York, which was the first women's rights assembly organized in America. It was set up to discuss women's rights alongside the abolition of slavery, as many in the area were part of the Underground Railroad and aided in freeing slaves to the north. The Post family was a big proponent of that. They helped a lot of slaves go through the Underground Railroad and get to safety. In attendance at this meeting were big-name characters like Frederick Douglass, and almost all of the people in attendance had heard tell of the spirit rappings in Rochester. Others in the area had begun to claim themselves that they could hear spirits as well. But instead of murdered peddlers, they were hearing family members or friends who had passed away. Oh, so they're kind of rebranding it. Yeah. So people are kind of riding the bandwagon now. It's just like a one-upping contest. Like, oh, you can hear rappings? I can actually hear scratches. <laughs> just so on and so forth. To like, actually, I spoke to the dead. Yeah, right. Exactly. I wrote and I scratched into my wall. I wrote on the backs of a demon. All right, now we're just getting crazy. It's like the proto version of uh, Stranger Things when she puts the Christmas lights on the wall. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's that. That is perfect. For religious and political folks like the Post family, the spirit's communication of an immortal afterlife combined with their beliefs that each person had their own soul and could connect to the spirit realm through their own agency kind of all worked together. And with each person having spirituality within themselves, it made Maggie and Kate's practices less heretical for a lot of these religious people. Mm -hmm. By autumn of 1848, the girls had been investigated by a man without any trickery being discovered. Investigators would come to witness the sisters' communications, attempting to prove them as frauds by asking questions of chance or even just thinking answers to questions, only to get correct answers in return. Like, one guy came and did a... he held a certain number of shells in his hands behind his back Mm -hmm. and then just thought the answer in his head and they still gave him the right answer. So it's weird things like that that start popping up that prove that something weird is going on outside of them just talking to spirits. Right, even if they were trying to cheat the system and like it's this isn't true, they're dead on. Yeah, exactly. That's almost too accurate to not give a little like credibility to they just have something else going on. Right, exactly. They're, they either have like a really good helper who can display the numbers to them in a dark room. <laughs> who supplied the shells. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the, But there's a, a lot of weird stuff going on around these two. On other occasions, the spirits would give wrong answers or instead spell the word done to signify that they didn't want to talk. I'm done with this therapy session. It's receiving the text that's just K. Yeah. <laughs> and then they sent the, th- they liked the message somehow. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Leah explained this away by saying that the spirits were as flawed as humans were, and that good spirits usually communicated consistently, while evil ones could be a little more troublesome. A little bit more grumpy. And speaking of Leah, she had also taken up the act of communicating with the spirits alongside her sisters. But, also like her sisters, she was suffering from severe headaches. This is kind of a weird point. I don't know if this has any bearing on their supposed abilities or not, because it's always been said that people with certain types of epilepsy have like more connection to psychokinesis, mm-hmm. or psych- like psychic powers. 
So I don't know if that has anything to do with their troubles or if it's just me reading into it, but could be honestly, I could see some like medical backing to that. You yeah. know, it's just what's happening inside your head. Right. So, so it just kind of makes sense. I don't know. It's weird. Luckily for them, though, Isaac Post, that family friend of theirs, was a drugstore owner, and he was available <laughs> often to provide them drugs. Hey, that's not bad at all. And this is old-timey drugs. They're getting, like, morphine. Oh, this is zero FDA, <laughs> yeah. so they are getting the good stuff. Slowly but surely, the Fox sisters' fame grew, especially when people began to move west and disease outbreaks were rampant. For example, one cholera outbreak that arrived from Europe was said to have killed up to 50 people a week in Albany in the summer of 1849. And in this climate, a movement like that of the Foxes, which promised a type of immortality, seemed all the more appealing. Yeah, again, it's just giving people that hope. By the end of summer 1849, Leah had moved again, and this time she moved into an even more desirable house. Word of the sisters' exploits was spreading, but it remained mainly local to New York. Those who doubted their powers as mediums began to test them even more thoroughly. One man invited Kate to stay with his family apart from her sisters so that he could test her and her alone. Being only 12 at the time, she accepted and was tested in, quote, every conceivable way. She slept with the ladies in the house, different ones, and was tested by them as well without address as with. End quote. Yeah, this is when they actually started doing like the physical tests. Yeah. Because you couldn't, as like a physician, like a male physician, there still was very much there was like rights, like you can't just give an examination to a to a woman to, to a find out spirits. <laughs> right. Yeah. To find out spirits. Yeah. Right? Like it's a big no no. Exactly. Still is. But throughout all the tests, the spirits still were doing their thing. They rapped, they flipped tables, they played music. And they even manifested as physical apparitions of disembodied hands when prompted. According to a witness discussing those hands, he said, quote, It will in one instant feel as cold as ice and as warm as a common hand of flesh, end quote. And when another witness asked to see the hand, it drifted across the moonlit window. Ooh. Spooky. That's weird, though. Like feeling a really cold hand at like one instant and then it just gets warm. It's a guy in, with an ice bucket that keeps touching his <laughs> You just hear... <laughs> More rapping. Weird. Unbelievable. I don't know what that was. But the spirits were apparently getting impatient with the Fox sisters. They asked the Fox family to spread their message to a wider audience, to tell more people about the truth of immortality. And to charge 25 cents a pop. <laughs> shush, shush, shush. That's the fine print. <laughs> Not wanting to subject themselves to public ridicule, Leah and Maggie expressed their concern. Not only is this a weird subject to go talk publicly about, but also women talking publicly about anything was kind of frowned upon in this time period. Right. Like, we just talked about the first, like, women's uh, nationalist movement not five minutes ago. They're further away from getting voting rights than the blacks are in this yeah. time period. So, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a long ways away for women to get the equal right thing. I mean, right. Right, and like just in this case, or I guess in this time period, there really wasn't even like actors, yeah, who were women. Like a right. lot of women uh, roles were still played by just younger men who yeah. could have higher voices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like the idea of, especially in this more Christian Christianity dominated setting in America, like very rare to have a woman. 
to put it bluntly, do things. Yeah, <laughs> like, like especially give lectures in a public forum. Right, right. So after expressing their concern, the spirits were not happy. And in a seance shortly afterwards, wrapped the message, quote, We will now bid you all farewell. Silence then followed, to the relief of Leah and Maggie, but to the despair of those in attendance who wished to hear from their deceased family and friends. For two weeks, the spirits stayed silent, but eventually returned and told the Fox sisters that their duty was to make the matter of spirits more public. And this time, they heeded the call. We were just on vacation for a little bit. It pretty much it. They were gone, and then two family friends of the foxes showed up to the house. Then mm-hmm. the spirits told at all four of them, "Hey, you guys are you got a duty now." And they just put the two guys that just showed up in charge of booking all of their gigs. Oh my god! <laughs> so, and you are now our manager. So everyone was super happy, and then the guys were like, "Wait, what? Wait, I have a, I have a job? <laughs> Hold <now>? on." <laughs> Over the next month, practice sessions were held with about 20 people in attendance at each, attempting to hear if the sounds were loud enough in different settings to be viable for a public appearance. Prominent figures were invited to see the phenomenon for themselves in order to drum up public support and to prove that the girls were the real deal. After the practice sessions proved successful, the spirits ordered that the public demonstration was to be held at the largest theater in Rochester, Corinthian Hall, which seated nearly 1,200 people. That's so daunting for teenagers. Yeah. That'd be daunting for us to do that. Especially to prove that what you've been doing for the past year or so is actually real. They're probably going up to the theater like, ghosts, you better not be bidding anyone farewell. In a time where we, as we just mentioned, women don't talk to public settings. Women do not get the microphones, no. Advertisements were printed the day before the event, announcing the event, and on the night of November 14th, 1849, 400 people arrived at Corinthian Hall to see the show. Some in the audience came to expose the fraud of the Rochester mediums, but others were merely curious or in search of entertainment, and still others were likely longing to hear from their departed loved ones. Kate, the apparent star of the spirit world, was still out of town during the performance, So surprisingly, Leah, who up to this point had only done private sittings for friends, decided to step on stage with Maggie. They they called in the B-team. They they called a big audible. Yeah. (laughs) The performance started and the rappings were indeed heard throughout the theater, involving the audience in the proceedings as either eager listeners or as potential communication participants. But once the demonstration ended, the audience delegated a panel of five men to dig into the performance to determine its truth. That's so funny. Unbeknownst to the sisters. Delegated a panel of five men to go do some searching. Yeah, it's a Scooby-Doo gang. It really is a Scooby-Doo gang. Without any warning, the committee held their investigation early the next day. Leah and Maggie conducted the spirit sounds for the men, answering, quote, not altogether right nor altogether wrong, end quote, while being subjected to multiple experiments. The men held the girls' feet, separated them at a distance, and moved the entire location they were doing the seance in, but in the end, they all agreed that sounds were heard and they couldn't find a means by which they were made. That 
Oh, God, that is actually very, very cool that they pass all these different tests. Swing and a miss for them. Right. <laughs> for, like, well, swing and a home run for the sisters. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Grand Slam. But yeah, they came prepared, I feel like. Like the buildup, they had to have some idea that this would happen. I don't know. Or and, just like maybe had a conversation like, so when men be men. <laughs> yeah. But like immediately after the performance. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know if I'd be, even if I was ready, like, am I ready you right. know, for something like that? Right. But the crowd, not happy with the findings that they were revealed at Corinthian Hall the next day, insisted on another five-man panel to test the girls <laughs> again. <laughs> this one was even more thorough and humiliating. The sisters were put on tables for the men to better hold or observe their feet. The men also tied the girls' dresses around their ankles. They said that during the tests, no noises were heard, but at other points, sounds were heard, and a doctor even checked the girls' lungs when the noises were made to ensure that no ventriloquism was at work. In the end, the second committee proved nothing more than the first. So instead of letting it be, the crowd at Corinthian Hall appointed a third committee wow that's that's 10 men that were duped thus far yeah, let's let's make it 15 15 and this one was even more skeptical than the first two with one man announcing that he would throw himself over a waterfall if he could not with the sisters and another stating that he would destroy his favorite beaver hat those are two very different things <laughs> one guy's literally betting his life and the other guy's betting his favorite hat that's a lot of dedication to proving teenagers wrong. <laughs> right, exactly. Like one third, mid-30-year-old divorcee and a 15-year-old girl. Or yes, yes, because Leah is, Lee is, got called up to the big leagues. But that's so funny. Do you think he followed through? No, the, neither of them did. The, the four, yeah, the other three are like, you said it, man. You made a bet. Yeah. <laughs> you're less true to their word, your word than they are. Yeah, you're more of a hoax than anything. Yeah. That'd be so, I should backtrack. If he unfortunately would have done that, jumped over a waterfall, and he comes back as one of the spirits for the girls. <laughs> it would have been kind of funny. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't want to phrase it. It's like, it'd be funny if he... Sorry, just- <laughs> sorry, honey. I have to go jump over a waterfall because a teenager proved me wrong. <laughs> She's like, Jebediah freaking again. I get it. I get it. <laughs> you barely missed the rocks last time. <laughs> <laughs> like the third time he's done this. <laughs> he's addicted to jumping over the waterfall. <laughs> just a thrill seeker. Yeah. This third committee bound and maneuvered the girls as the second one had, but added a further indignity. After reluctantly consenting, the girls were taken into a separate room with a subcommittee of ladies and stripped to be searched for noise devices. The sisters apparently both wept the entire time until Amy Post stormed into the room and ended the investigation. Yeah, that's absolutely insane to take it that far just to debunk this. Yeah. Like, that's just such a violation of well i at this point women didn't have rights but just basic human rights yeah like that's such a insane violation and they in their minds they were totally in the clear because they appointed a subcommittee of women to do it right no you're still poking and prodding at two one teenager girl Mm -hmm. body and just this other random woman just to find if you can get an answer for their spirits and like, do you even feel good about yourself if they would have happened to debunk them? Yeah, exactly. Like, you're still quite a bit of an asshole. Oh, and I'm sure these guys are just waiting outside the door. Like, oh, they were. Can I get a? They a were. List? List. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure. 
After the investigation was ended by a very angry Amy Post, the women found no evidence of trickery on the foxes or in their clothing. The foxes had beaten their skeptics. So it really was a grand slam for them. They proved the haters wrong. Three strikes and they were out. Yeah, yeah. Outraged by the examinations proving fruitless, citizens formed into what were essentially more angry mobs. Josiah Bissell, who was son of one of the wealthiest families in Rochester, led a group of disgruntled men and threw firecrackers into the room, mounted the stage, and invited the ladies on stage to be, quote-unquote, investigated. They had firecrackers back then? I I guess. (laughs) Did they just bring them from home? They were just tossing them. (laughs) Like, I've been saving these for a very special day, and they chose this day to use their firecrackers? And you're doing it in the biggest venue in Rochester. Right. Do people just... This is just mind-boggling, like They're, an angry mob about this. It's the wealthiest family. He's the son of the wealthiest family in Rochester. He can kind of do what he wants. Right, so. right. But the police did eventually show up, and Leah and Maggie left under police protection. But thanks to Josiah Bissell, who had attempted to stifle their movement, it ended up gaining them widespread publicity. Publicity. But with this publicity came new problems, because the Foxes knew that they only had themselves and a select few friends who could protect them from the future demands of not only the spirits, but worse, the probing hands of their contemporaries. Right, the spirits are kind of second nature at this point. Like, they are not the threat. No, but they are demanding them to go do public appearances, which is what caused them which to just be causes in this predicament. Oh, maybe that is true. So, the spirits aren't always doing them the best. To give some... To give some credit, spirits have not been known to be the best managers for talent. True. After the Corinthian Hall four-day extravaganza, Leah and Maggie joined the ranks of others who had gotten onto stages and preached their scientific, political, or religious platforms across the country. Some churchgoers were now nervous that their faith was on shaky ground, but science and more liberal theologies promised that humankind was only advancing in knowledge. Papers were published that put the spirits into context of an unknown scientific principle, portraying it not as supernatural, but natural and just not yet understood. They compared it to electricity. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So it probably saves them from a more angry mob. Yeah, definitely. They they get support pretty quick. I mean, they already had supporters. Right. They had people that sat on stage with them during their performance at Corinthian Hall, and they had people that were waiting... like. Amy Post stormed into the room to mm-hmm. protect them, pretty much. So, I mean, they do have people on their sides, but now they just have media on their sides, which is huge. Right. Shout out electricity coming out the same yeah, time. Right, exactly. Also, what an insane thing to compare what they're doing to electricity. Hey, I mean, one of the biggest movements in scientific, like mesmer, mesmerism mm. or whatever it's called, it's it pretty much you wave your hands over someone's body to redirect the electricity around it so that it can heal you. So... It's kind of just the thing that they do. It is just, that's true. That's true. Skeptics were invited to devise experiments to test the raps, like scientists would test their experiments in a lab. Letters arguing back and forth were appearing in all manner of publications, from the New York Tribune to another extremely long titled article named History of the Strange Sounds or Rappings Heard in Rochester and Western New York and Usually Called the Mysterious Noises which are supposed to be many communications from the spirit world, together with all the explanation that can yet be given of the matter. 
that's unreal that that's the title the whole title <laughs> the entire it's there's just no white space it's on four that. four lines of single space 11 font on this note page thank goodness that authors eventually just were like the great gatsby <laughs> yeah, exactly we don't need to tell them exactly what's going on in this yeah they can read the book <laughs> yeah they'll figure it out for their own what does the green light mean yeah. who knows it means go <laughs> yeah, it, means, it means go mr dibert <laughs> oh my god but this very long time he would just about, he would be so freaking proud right now if you I listen know, to that right? he's like i got through to those kids <laughs> He was a teacher of ours in high school, for those of you that aren't aware. Yes. I yes. just I just lashed out against a teacher I haven't talked to in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it's been 10 years. But this uh, very long-winded title of this article was a book that urged every man to pretty much make the decision for themselves as to what they believed after reading the facts thus far in the investigations. So it's kind of just saying, figure it out for yourself. Yeah. Do your own research. Yeah, very do, funny. Do Alex your own Jones. research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex Jonesy, and that's a great prompt for ChatGPT. That would that would be a title he would come up with. <laughs> oh, 100%. After Kate returned to Rochester from her time away, the three sisters then began holding large public gatherings at Leah's home, packing the entire house, literally. Like, people would sit on the stairs. They began accepting payment for their seances, hosting men like Frederick Douglass, who was quite upset that the wrappings were silent to his questions, and later mailed an apology letter for his attitude. <laughs> he was a little fed up, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny, because he's the, a huge name yes. in the abolitionist movement. He got mad because there weren't any knocks to respond to his yes or no questions. How come I'm not getting haunted? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Some returned multiple times in an attempt to get the answers that they desired, ignoring the fact that the girls could possibly have researched the answers to the questions that they posed the original time in the time that they had between the seances. <laughs> we're going to, we see your facts and we're going to ignore them. Blinders on. Yes. <laughs> but regardless, the seances were spectacles, marked by floating tables, invisible band performances from levitating instruments, and slamming cabinet doors. Many came to agree that the girls were not acting in their own interests, rather that they were merely a passive media for the spirit world to communicate through. Kate, with her innocent and childlike nature, softened people's harsh criticism of her by appearing as though she didn't even know that there were people suspicious of her motives. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, she behaved as though she was intently engaged with the spirits. Maggie also carried herself as an honest and mild girl, with no cunning behind her actions. And the spirits held themselves up on their own, delivering news of events before they were even public knowledge, with one man comparing it to contemporary communication by declaring, quote, God's telegraph has outdone Morse's altogether, end quote. God's telegraph is not a bad title to have. No. For doing these seances. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You're just getting answers and knocks. It's pretty yeah. much Morse code. So. Right, right. But yeah, it's, it's very funny that... Either Kate was the best actress of the time and mm -hmm. just able to put on this face of, what do you mean? Yeah. I didn't know you were questioning my motives. Wait, me? Me? <laughs> Not me. But the going back to the point that there are passive media for the spirit world to communicate through, this is the, the phrase that really applies to Kate. And it will throughout her entire life. Like her entire life is going to, from this point on, is pretty much her from teenager until she's 
pretty much in her 30s where people don't even look at her as really a person. Mm. They look at her as a means to get what they want, to talk to someone they want to talk to, to see something spectacular. She doesn't really have anyone that looks at her for her, which right. I feel so bad for her. No one asks her how she is. It's how are my dead relatives doing? Right, exactly. And even like her own older sister is looking at her as a way to make money now. So Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's her point like she is the most enigmatic person in this story she's the one that has the most myths surrounding her for mm-hmm. good reason because she has the most crazy things happen around her yeah but she's also the one that i feel the worst for <laughs> right like and those crazy things culminate to she got knocked out several times yeah she's been a sick girl all her life yeah. and now she's just being looked at as a tool yeah in a, more ways than women were at the time period mm-hmm the sisters then started touring the area, going from New York, going from Rochester to Albany for lectures and seances, charging a dollar per person for a group session or five dollars for a private one, easily being able to cover their budget of one hundred and fifty dollars a week. Which one hundred fifty dollars a week in eighteen fifties money? That's oh a boy. That's a good penny. Yeah, and a dollar a person. That's probably like thirty bucks. I mean. 20 bucks even that's like substantial income for the time yeah i mean you're thinking travel expenses and stuff for the girls for their coterie of probably like six people 150 dollars in 1850 would be five thousand eight hundred and forty eight dollars yeah i mean it makes sense according to all right now i see the source according to officialdata.org nice so but, I mean, it's not just the gir- three girls. It's the three girls, their mom most of the time, Calvin mm-hmm. Brown's traveling with them. Sometimes they have friends coming with them. So it's probably five to seven to eight people. You think traveling with that many people? Yeah. $5,000 makes sense. We got some bills to pay, people to feed. After Albany, they then moved on to Troy, New York, where wives were beginning to hiss at the sisters who were taking their husband's attention. Oh my, of course. <laughs> As Leo- This is where the goth, the goth girl in fishnets <laughs> rumor starts. <laughs> it's the meme of the girl looking, or the boy looking back at the girl oh, as she walks yeah. past and the girlfriend mad at him. Yep, exactly. But as Leah put it, quote, They insinuated that if the mediums were men, their husbands would not become so deeply enlisted in this unpopular and seemingly weird subject. They'd be pissed. They'd be pissed that they'd be pissed that the wives were exactly to the dudes, and then they'd be hissing. You imagine Channing Tatum was one of these Fox sisters. (laughs) It'd be done. It'd be. He'd be. I'd be there. (laughs) Yeah. Right. We'd build a time machine. (laughs) After Troy, the girls moved on to New York City. And by the beginning of 1850, the girls were a full traveling show. The Fox sisters saw the big cities with all their lights and commotion, and people from all walks of life showed up to the sessions, with many investigators walking away admitting their failure to explain the sounds, and more surprisingly, the accuracy with which questions were answered. That's always the thing that kind of blows my mind, is how all of these questions in towns that they're traveling to, unless they set it up beforehand, are getting answered correctly. And they don't know who's coming to these things. Right. So that part's weird to me. But Well, and plus, say they were just doing research beforehand. It's not like there's social media where you can actually get to know right. like some general things about someone. So either they're sending people ahead weeks ahead of time to kind of scout and see... Scout like, what everybody, can, though. Everybody, yeah. 
Yeah, because you, like I said, you don't know who's going to come. Mm-hmm. And in New York City, that's a lot of people. Oh my gosh, yeah. In a society where women weren't associated with sleight of hand normally, as far as magic and stuff like that went, it may have just been easier for these men to doubt their ability and admit that perhaps there were spirits at work. Or perhaps the investigators just weren't as as observant as they would like to admit. Yeah. (laughs) They're really not that clever. No. I mean, one of the investigators, he was in the room with the girls and then Calvin Brown is there. Mm -hmm. And the investigators put, and some guy was there. And a fella. So they obviously weren't as thorough as they'd like to admit. No. And their great family friend. Nope. Just some. Some guy. Some guy. Probably walked in and handed like his coat and hat to him. Like, here you go. (laughs) He tried walking in with a pitcher of water and the chair was pulled up. Yeah. <laughs> he's still he's still getting every time. <laughs> I just want one cup of Stop water. Stop pitchers of water. <laughs> Throughout all of these examinations, the only complaint that Leah discussed was the frequency with which committees of ladies would disrobe them and hold their feet in order to find answers. So not only did it happen at Corinthian Hall and not only did it happen to Kate while she was away, it happened to them afterwards too. That's so nuts, like, such a fixation on they have to be hiding something. Right. Like, that's if, so, un- that's uh, unbelievable how many, like, just call it what it is, like, strip search? Yeah. If you didn't find something at their first big, huge public appearance where they needed to perform, I don't right. think you're going to find it at these small hometown seances. No, you are not. But every time, the strip searches produced no machines to produce the sounds, and the sounds were still heard when their bodies were manipulated into certain positions. Eventually, the New York Tribune posted their results publicly, exonerating the girls, saying, quote, Whatever may be the origin or cause of the wrappings, the ladies in whose presence they occur do not make them. We tested this thoroughly and to our entire satisfaction, end quote. Despite this, the foxes were constantly on guard against their enemies. And some of these enemies were even noted to have followed the sisters, spying on them at night, and even believed by some to be assassins. That's so weird. But I don't think they were. But <laughs> Right, that's, that's probably blown out of proportion, but, like, get a hobby. Yeah. Get a job. <laughs> and it, Well, it was funny because the book said I, it might have just been husbands who were, like, sicked on them like dogs because they were mad. Yeah. Like, their wives were mad at them. Were pissed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But try as they might to silence the spirits, the ball was already rolling and circles were being formed all across the country in places like St. Louis and Boston and even more. Some skeptics eventually hit upon one of the earliest theories about the sounds which followed the girls and stated that they were likely made with joints or bones in the feet or legs, like that one doctor did back in Hydesville. Yep. And every single strip search or examination is hold their feet. (laughs) Right, exactly. This brought more doctors to examine the seances, stating that in their findings, the girls weren't producing any sounds when their knees were held, and that the motion was felt in their knees when the sounds were made. Another attempt came from within the sisters' own circle, when a friend, a parent friend, tricked Kate, who went on to allegedly admit that the seances were all a ruse, set up by aided responses and reading facial cues and body language. Or it was suggested that a theoretical substance called Odin Force was oh producing the raps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is one thing that I did miss. I didn't see coming. <laughs> the Erie Canal hate and Odin, Odin Force. Force. <laughs> Which, by the way, great heavy metal band. Name, oh, yeah. In my opinion. Or 
It was suggested that it was collusion and ventriloquism. Or the girls had not spiritual, but psychic powers. That was more acceptable for some reason. The psychic powers is very funny. Like, I know. And then they bent spoons. Right. <laughs> Regardless, people were still showing up in droves to speak with the spirits and attempt to commune with the dead. By the summer of 1851, the girls had completed a tour of Ohio with their mother and their trusted friend, Calvin Brown, who had proposed to Leah on what he thought was his deathbed to ensure her protection from the constant taunts on her divorce. She accepted his proposal, and Calvin miraculously recovered long enough for them to get married. (laughs) He's back, baby! (laughs) Like, he was literally coughing up huge piles of blood and then proposed to her, and she said yes, and he's just like, let's go! He just had, he just caught the worst cold ever because he kept on getting pitchers of water. (laughs) (laughs) But then love cured all wounds. (laughs) It's like he's at the wedding. I'm just picturing like, and a toast to me and my. (laughs) He sits down at the head table and the whole thing falls. (laughs) Son of a gun. So in- Kate's in the background peeing herself <laughs> laughing. <laughs> she fist bumps a disembodied yeah. hand. <laughs> so in the four years since the beginning of the wrappings back in Hydesville, the Foxes had forged a popular movement based on their spiritual communications, with thousands of men and women across the country sharing the faith. Men appeared as lecturers and women as trance speakers, and the movement wanted to break the world out of its deep sleep of materialism and unbelief, and finally coined itself with a name. Modern spiritualism. Ooh. Not your average spiritualism. Not your grandfather's spiritualism. (laughs) Not your your dad's root beer. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually, Maggie grew into a woman and found herself in the throes of love with a man named Elisha Kent Kane, who was an intrepid explorer and author who had been known to fall into romance with a woman only to leave on an adventure and never return. Oh, yeah. He definitely... He, had, he himself has such an interesting life, he just does. being an Arctic explorer. He dedicate the book dedicates like entire three chapters to him and her relationship. So oh, wow. it was a big turning point for Maggie in her life, granted. Oh. But I'm not going to get into all the details of their love notes. You don't need like their that. love story. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he is a very fascinating man. He went on two Arctic explorations and tried to find a missing captain and wrote a best-selling book. His second book that he wrote on his second Arctic exploration was said to be second to only the bible in popularity <laughs> not bad. so not a bad big deal yes he promised to marry maggie but elisha didn't like the practice of spiritualism and his family disapproved of maggie as a whole because she wasn't an upper class woman and his family was also very devout uh yeah. christians if i'm not i forget there's catholic it was catholic maybe. Yeah. or methodist I mean, no i think it was catholic it was yeah. catholic yeah Maggie disavowed her former practice of spiritualism and stopped holding seances in an effort to legitimize her relationship to Elisha, but he tragically died at age 37 after his second Arctic exploration. He he was born very sickly. He kind of defied the odds, and that's why he was so popular. He was kind of this defying the odds American tale where he became this intrepid explorer after such a sickly childhood. So it just kind of caught up to him in the end. Right, right. And also very cold. 
I'm not going to do another pitcher joke. I swear to God, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but he, like, his stories and his second story is insane. His ship got crushed by ice. They mm-hmm. had to walk boats like, thou- over, like almost a thousand miles to get the shore of Greenland. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, and then eventually got rescued. It's, it's crazy. Kane left Maggie money in his will, but the family denied that it was for her and it wouldn't, wouldn't release it to her. And also didn't even let her go to the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were not fans. But she had her own card to play because she held all of the love letters that he had given her. Yes. So, I mean, it was kind of a tete a tete Mm -hmm. back and forth between them. But eventually she spiraled down into a depression and began heavily drinking, eventually becoming a Catholic to try and kind of redeem herself in the light of her beloved, her departed beloved. And she fell out of the spotlight of spiritualism for a while. For Leah, her husband Calvin died not long after their marriage, not able to shake that illness that he was suffering from before they got married. And for her part, she continued holding seances in private until 1857, when she met and married a widowed businessman named Daniel Underhill, thus taking on the name of Leah Fox Fish Brown Underhill, and retired from public seances. She was married three times, so she got all the last names. She gets all the last names. Gotta catch them all. Pokemon. I just love that all of these people back in this time were like, you have to own those divorces or dead dead family members. That is hilarious. Like, hilariously terrifying and bad, but hilarious all right. the same. I mean, her first marriage... Is it just so, like, the next husband knows, like, five, five deaths? It's like a Carfax report. Oh, my God. It's like how many owners have you had? It's a hysteria fax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, to her credit, her first marriage was a childish impulse. Not that it was a good right. decision on any on anyone's part. But then she stayed single for a long time and only married Calvin really. I mean, she had become close to him because he was around her for a long time. But then he just kind of gave her an out for the divorcee line. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't end up. She didn't expect him to survive at all. Yeah, she did not see that one coming. No. I wonder if she was surprised. She's like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> She's out in the back like, oh, okay, I feel good about what I did. And then she just hears like a big stretch like, oh, yeah, I feel great. I'm just full of life today. Yeah. <laughs> but then she does finally find a good man and settles down. So. Right. She was now the bourgeois housewife she had yearned to be for so long and was able to settle into the normal strides of an American housewife. Despite retiring from public seances, she did still hold private ones on occasion, though. But of the three, Kate was the only one who continued to hold seances for paying clients. She had no romantic interests by the age of 24 and was dedicated to spiritualism. But her biggest feat was still to come. In the presence of a banker who met with Kate nearly every other day when she was in town, the figure of the man's wife appeared in the room with them as a physical entity. Not once, but multiple times over the course of their meetings, getting progressively more lifelike each time she would appear. He felt his wife's hair on his face, saw her eyes, and even received kisses on the forehead from her. And then another figure showed up, a short, fat man who ended up being Benjamin Franklin for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) That's the funniest part of the story. Just like this super romantic get-together, this guy's finally seeing his dead wife again. (laughs) Then Benjamin Franklin's like... He's doing the tip, the cat tiptoes in the corner, like trying to get out of frame. 
he's just peering like around he's peering around the doorway like a cartoon character like scooby-doo like flying a kite anywhere anyone here <laughs> he's just a character man. but ben franklin like that's so 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 random and then he starts giving advice to everybody yeah and just, they and they take it <laughs> write that down right that's that down. the craziest part this is freaking ben franklin uh but Going back to this man's wife, it is possible that Kate could have pretending could have been pretending to be the man's wife, but even she herself was said to be surprised at points by the events that took place and wasn't prepared for everything that happened. Like there is times when she was said to be super excited when the man's wife would appear and then the, the spirit would disappear because she got too excited. Oh. So, I mean, if you can hear her voice uh, across the room and then someone else is in the room with you, it's like, who's that? <laughs> Wait, she just never knows. Jake gets to the point where like the most random like genghis khan what are you doing here who are you yeah that's also true (laughs) but around this time was also the time that the civil war broke out which was a big boon to spiritualism as a whole with people looking to reconnect with lost loved ones or perhaps just being generally uncertain about the world around them in such a time of uncertainty even mary todd lincoln was host to mediums in the washington in the white house after her son willie died yeah, so, she actually brought in mediums to the yeah. Oval Office. And it wasn't said whether Abe Lincoln like was there or if he just kind of let his wife do her thing. I think he was busy with other stuff. He's like, you know what, Mary, just just, just That's do your okay, thing. honey. You can have as many mediums in the, in the White House as you want, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, are they staying for, for dinner? <laughs> I'll set the table again. <laughs> what do ghosts eat? Like, yeah, Leah and her husband continued to hold private seances in their home while Maggie continued her war with alcohol and depression. In 1864, the first National Spiritualist Convention was held in Chicago, but none of the Fox sisters attended. A year later, the war ended, Lincoln was assassinated, and both of the Fox sisters' parents died. Kate and Maggie, on their part, had no one to rely on for emotional support after their parents' deaths, pushing them further into their respective corners. Eventually, Kate turned to drinking as well, until she was placed in the care of a health clinic in New York to keep her from her vices. She stayed under their care free of charge in exchange for seances held for the family. Eventually, she became so sick in their care that she needed to be carried around to get anywhere. I can't believe that they had her do seances while she's trying to recover from alcoholism. I mean, it was kind of, she wasn't, she never stopped though. She was oh, always doing that them. way. Okay. Yeah. And she, she was communicating with their dead child for them. So, I mean, it right. kind of was a, a win-win for both at the time. Right. Right. But yeah, she, her physical illnesses kind of hit her really hard during this time period. It, I mean, exacerbated by the alcoholism. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, she gets very sick and like probably could have died if she wasn't under good care. Oh, very much so. Eventually she did recover and the spirit of Benjamin Franklin, who is still around, told Kate that she needed a fresh start abroad. What a very, very interesting just ghost to haunt you. Right? <laughs> Out of everybody. Like, was George Washington busy? I don't... Like, I, I guess Ben Franklin, he's, he's a good founding father. I, I mean, I'd he be fine. He loved France for a very specific reason. That's right. He's like, go abroad. <laughs> go to France. <laughs> Which she does do eventually. Yeah, yeah. She starts in, in England and then goes to France. Yeah, her time in England is actually super interesting. And just the fact that this, probably the first, I mean, let's call it cultural export 
Yeah, it is pretty to much to England. Like the, they gave us, they gave us the Beatles, and we sent them first the Fox Sisters, yeah, or Fox Sister. But after giving them these fists, yeah, and that get, L, <laughs> yeah, we're sending you our. <laughs> what a way to just rub it in! Like we gave you two L's. Hey, now want- here's someone to help you talk to those. That yeah, I, was see gonna, the L's. I was just gonna say, do you want to talk to your long lost ancestor that we killed like seventy years ago? Yeah, <laughs> specifically by Andrew Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> in so, the battle that didn't happen have to happen. No, the Battle of New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it is. It's a uh, it, spiritualism kind of arrived in England around 1852 and. This was a little before she got there, but it mm. came from America. So, I mean, yeah, it pretty much was our first international export over there. Right. And kind of like what we've been talking about with America and how this was the perfect time for this to happen. Same thing with England. Like 30, I believe 20 years prior to this, no, excuse me, 30 years prior to this, uh, the Napoleonic Wars finally ended, which we don't really talk about it was essentially a world war. Like it's estimated anywhere between 4.5 to 5.5 million people died which is crazy which is crazy for this time period and so there's just so much loss but also due to those wars the economy was in shambles taxes oh, yeah. were nuts cuz they had to stop this madman in France right and so you're dealing with a destroyed economy lots of loss of life sickness and then in the 1850s the Crimean war started for uh, for the UK, which was a battle between them, France again, lo and behold, yeah, and the Ottoman Empire. Well, and they they fought us in yes. not only the American Revolution but the War of eighteen twelve mm-hmm. and lost both of those. Yeah, and so they're already financially strained. Then Napoleon comes back, yep, and then they have to fight the Dutch too. On top of that, and then they have to fight the Crimean War. They have a lot going. They're on. always fighting everybody. I guess that's what happens when you try and conquer the literal entire world. Yeah, but, the world fights back yeah, quite exactly. a bit. So, Kate eventually moves from England to France, stays there for a while, and eventually gets married in 1872 to a man named Henry Jenkin, and eventually they have two children together. But she never stopped practicing seances in private the entire time. And, it's kind of interesting at this point, too. She like really gets in her bag, like develops a sick crossover dribble. Yeah. She, uh, and I quote here, She's able to translate spirit messages in astonishing and unprecedented ways by communicating two messages simultaneously. She could do three. She could by she, the end. Ended up getting yeah, she three. could yeah. she could write one down, mm-hmm. she could speak one aloud, and then there's she there was like a third way that she could do it where she was like no, Morse code. She was writing with both hands or something and then like could tell the other person like have three communications at one time or like oh no 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 okay here i think it, this is what it was she was writing one, like doing automatic writing with one of them mm-hmm. she was speaking to another one and then she was tapping to a third one all I, at the same time i get overwhelmed when i get two text like messages i can't at the pat my point. head or i can't rub my head and pat my stomach at the same time without getting confused right like you have to actually <laughs> think i literally it, this is a podcast of course you didn't see me do it but i actually did that and i had to close my yeah, eyes you at home try doing that yeah and then add a third thing <laughs> <laughs> so yeah she's really like hitting a stride honestly in her late life mm-hmm In 1875, the sisters all reconnected when Kate had her second child at Leah's home in the United States, and Maggie had by then resumed public seances and cut back on her drinking, at least enough. 
Tragically, however, Kate's husband would die after less than a decade of marriage, and she returned back to drinking after a streak of private and public seances, and was eventually arrested for apparent neglect of her children in 1888. And then, it came time for Maggie and Kate to do something drastic. They were going to destroy spiritualism. The very thing that they built. But they realized that after Leah had published a book, a book about their endeavors, capitalizing on her younger sister's hard work and giving them none of the returns again, that she had been taking advantage of them the entire time. Yeah, she's kind of a terrible person. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> she's just a very opportunistic person. Yeah. I mean, in the society of the time, you look at the Ross, like the all of these rich families making it on oil or, or railroads or whatever you want to look at. They're doing the same thing. They're exploiting everybody. Right. So she's just like, that's just how life is. So I guess you can't really blame her too much. But yeah, she's kind of a sh- shitty sister. Right. Sorry, family. <laughs> but like I said, her daughter is older than they are. Right. So she doesn't really look at them as sisters probably anymore, even. Right. And like we discussed before with Kate specifically, people aren't even looking at her as a person. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Kate. Man, I feel so bad for Kate. Right. At this point, Maggie published a letter in the New York Herald that denounced spiritualism and its plethora of fake mediums. And later that year, she did another interview in which she proclaimed that her and Kate started the wrappings as a prank that just escalated out of hand. But she didn't say how just yet. Because on October 21st, 1888, at the New York Academy of Music, Maggie got on stage and began a demonstration proving that all of their spirit communications had been fake while Kate looked on approvingly from a box seat. The sound started with apples on strings that the girls would drop on the floor, then advanced when they learned that they could make the wrappings with their knuckles and their joints. Maggie claimed that nobody doubted it at first because they were children, and that Leah forced them to continue to fool people in order to make a new religion, and more importantly, to make money. The only reason she had gone back to spiritualism after her conversion to Catholicism was because of money. This is Maggie. And she was now done with deceiving people, blaming all of her misfortune on Leah. She then demonstrated the wrappings with her toes with the doctor there to confirm that it was indeed her toes making the noises in front of a packed crowd in a yeah. theater. So, Not the reunion tour that the crowd was maybe looking for. But. No, but for Maggie and Kate, it's a very good way for them to rekindle their relationship at least. Yeah. This was labeled a death blow to spiritualism, and a book titled, quote, The Death Blow to Spiritualism, being the true story of the Fox sisters, as revealed by authority of Margaret Fox Kane and Catherine Fox Jenkin, which recounted and expanded upon Maggie's confession. But spiritualists everywhere consoled themselves by finding reasons for Maggie's sudden betrayal and forged ahead. Leah, for her part, kept her head down and managed to sidestep any blame for the most part, continuing to host friends in her comfortable home with her husband. With the money from the book. Yeah, and the money from the seance. And the well, seance and her husband was just rich as fuck. That like also he, helps. He was a widowed business guy, so. Oh, that also helps. Yeah. That helps a lot. But strangely, after a little while, Kate wrote to a friend that the- she thought money could be made in proving that the wrappings weren't made with toes and made an ambiguous statement about spiritualism, saying, quote, They are hard at work to expose the whole thing if they can, but they certainly cannot. End quote. As if to confirm this, Maggie recanted her entire confession a year afterwards, 
stating that she wanted to set the record straight and take revenge on those who'd promised her a profit for exposing spiritualism. She also partially blamed pressure from powerful Catholics who wanted her to distance herself from seances and spirits. She also stated that she hadn't been bribed by the spiritualists to recant her public confession, but did openly state that she was looking to make a living holding lectures once again on spiritualism's behalf. Yeah, yeah that's kind of where it kind of gets a little confusing in terms of who you want to believe. Because it's, it, from what she kind of says, it's all backed in one way or another, kind of by, I kind of want to make some money on this. Well, yeah. I, and I mean, that makes sense. She had no money coming in because she was getting money from the Kane family eventually mm-hmm. because she sued them, like pretty much took them to court with the threat of the letters. And then she got a lawyer and got right. like at least a little bit of money from them. But then that got cut off. And then so she had no means of income. And then when she recanted or she like destroyed spiritualism pretty much. And then she wasn't making any money on seances anymore. And then she never got money from the people who apparently promised her that money. So she's kind of just getting screwed over at every turn by people who are trying to make her or trying to give her a livelihood again. Right. Or saying they will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, this is this is the tough part of their story. I mean, they confessed and then showed that they were apparently doing it the way that people thought they were. Mm-hmm. But then they both go on to continue doing it right and still to like as far as i know to this day no one outside of themselves has ever really been able to prove that they were doing it wrong Mm -hmm. so they literally had to tell on themselves exactly which is the crazy part to me right so on november 1st 1890 leah fox fish brown underhill died at the likely age of 77 or 78 Kate followed soon after, passing on July 2nd, 1892, at the likely age of 55. And less than a year later, Maggie passed away on March 3rd, 1893. Maggie and Kate were buried together at Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, together in death as they were in life. After their deaths, spiritualism fluctuated. Just as it rose during the Civil War, so did it during World War I. But as for the truth behind the lives of the Foxes, it's the same as it was then got to decide for yourself what you want to believe. And perhaps that isn't the most important thing in the story. Perhaps the change they represented is what keeps the story interesting. In a time marked by upheaval at every junction, they represented another step into the spotlight for women, religion, and society as a whole, just packaged in a slim, black-haired, purple-eyed girl and her two older sisters. They were storytellers, who created an exciting and personal forum in which all participants could tell themselves a different version of the tale. And that, my friends, is the story of the Fox Sisters. The Fox Sisters. Man, that is... I also didn't mention that they went to Russia. <laughs> Kate went to Russia and yeah. talk, like, did, medium, <laughs> did seances for the Czar. The Czar, yeah. So, <laughs> she got around. She was a very much international traveler. Like, she, some of her European exploits were just, just insane. Yeah. And like, it led to even these seances. I'm not sure if it was by her. But they eventually got to the point where they were happening in Buckingham Palace. Like, this is insane. Yeah, that, I mean, like I said, Kate is the, the epicenter of this entire story, to right. me, at least. Oh, for sure. She's so. kind of the, whether you want to say the one that's most affected by spirits, or the one that just has the pest cracking of limbs. Yeah. She's definitely the center of it all. I, I, I think if anything, like, but there was a quote in the book that I thought was cool where it was like, 
you can't say that all crows are black because you could. There's a possibility you find that one white one, right. and that's kind of the same for the Fox sisters. You can if you can say that everything is false that they did, everything is fake that they did. But if there's that one, even just one thing that they did that was real, right? Who's to say there's not more? Right. So right, that is very true. Yeah, but it's a, it's a very fascinating tale. Hundred percent. But if you want to continue the conversation online, you can find us on every single social media channel except for threads, I guess. I don't have a thread still yet. still don't know what that is. It's very funny that... Aren't they getting sued because they just t- are old Instagram employees that took all their codes? The old, the old Twitter Oh, uh, okay, employees. old Twitter. But it's very funny that people are like, finally, Mark Zuckerberg is taking down Elon Musk. But we forget, Zuckerberg was uh, in front of Congress not four years ago. Yeah. Being accused of tampering with elections. And now he's going to be on pay-per-view Paper. fight night with Elon Musk. Oh my god, if that happens, that would be so great. I saw a picture of, of Zuckerberg. He's, he's shredded. He's so, yeah, so like He actually fights. Musk yeah. is going to get his ass kicked. I hope it happens <laughs> I so do bad. Too. But you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history, Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. Then you can also find us on Instagram YouTube, I almost said pay-per-view, <laughs> Facebook, and anywhere else you consume social media at Gems of History Podcast. Just type that in the search bar and you can find us. And also Patreon. Yes. We now have a Patreon where four or $5 you can vote on a, you can submit and vote for a listener suggested topic. We do those on a monthly basis. You will also receive a sticker and our eternal love. Yeah, if you want to see pay-per-view of us, me and Evan will get in the octagon and fight. Can we fight like a bear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Coliseum fights! Coliseum That'd be fights! Awesome! Yeah. I would totally do that if we get we if we get people to watch and we get money for that. It's like oh, that'd be incredible. We also, fight either a bear, but it has to be a really sleepy one. <laughs> really tired. He's really tired. I would do nothing but just poop it. I I could never bring myself, even if it was like life or death. I don't know if I could bring myself to just chop a bear. Just oh, that would make because we'd have sad. to have swords, obviously. Uh, yes. Can mine be a katana? Sure. You, we make the rules. Yeah, that is the true. The bear's not making the rules. <laughs> <laughs> About to confer with the bear's agent. Yeah, right. Exactly. But if you want to get in contact with us on our email too, uh, if this if this episode reminded you of any personal stories that you have with spirits or ghosts or anything of that. At that sort, you can send them our way at gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail We're always looking to hear from you guys. If any. Honestly, if any of our episodes bring up a story in your mind that you've experienced that have to do with our topics, send it our way. Love to hear it. We love to expand our topics. So, yeah, oh, let yeah. us know. But that's all we got for you guys this week. We will talk to you again next week. And until then, just remember that we love you and you are appreciated. And we appreciate that you listen because without you guys, we're nothing. So stay polished out there.